parents, it's always difficult to find the balance. The balance between being healthy versus treating ourselves, aspiring to exercise every day when in reality we haven't gotten off the couch. But it is possible to bring healthy eating and exercise into your routine in a way that's enjoyable for the whole family. Welcome to Growing Pains, a podcast by Honey Kids Asia that explores the challenges of modern parenting and provides a safe space for parents to navigate the ever-changing landscape of parenthood. My name is Ange. I'm a mum to two boys, Xavier, who's 11, and Marcel, who's nine. In this episode, we chat with wife and husband duo, coach Amanda Lim and Dr. Tyler Lim. They work together at Lyft Clinic to help women with metabolic health, anti-aging and more. We're going to learn that a healthy lifestyle doesn't have to be out of reach for all families. Hello, Amanda. It's so lovely to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. First up for our listeners, tell us a little about you. I've been in the coaching business for quite some time. I started 17 years ago as a personal trainer, and then that kind of sparked the fire to learn more about different elements of wellness. So then I became a certified nutritionist a few years later. I got my prenatal and postpartum certification a few years after that, and then I got my health coaching certification most recently, and then it kind of all came together in the brand that is now Coach Amanda Lim. And how did you initially come into this fitness and nutrition sphere? I grew up doing gymnastics, playing soccer. I was a diver. I did all sorts of different sports. Gymnastics was my main sport. So I always had a passion for physical activity. So when I was in graduate school, I needed to make some extra cash. And I was like, yo, training is is the thing, right? Because I know how to train, right? I've been coached. I've, I've you know, been in a training program since I was three years old. I can do this. And I did. And it was wonderful. So it became a side gig just to fund my graduate studies. But through doing that, I started realizing that more and more clientele were asking me about different aspects of wellness. Like I said, nutrition, lifestyle, you know, uh, pregnancy safe exercise, you know, as a woman in my 20s and 30s. And I was like, there's something to this. You know, this could be a business and not just a side gig. So after I finished my second master's degree, I went off and founded my first company called Benefit. And that was in Los Angeles. And I operated under Benefit until I moved to Singapore. So it was something that, you know, was a side gig, but then became a full-time gig very shortly after my master's degree. So I love your mission around lifting women, uplifting women. How are you doing that both, I guess, literally and figuratively? I think what's different about the way that I coach maybe from some other, you know, trainer and nutritionist styles is that, of course, everything that I do is backed in the science, right? I don't just have, you know, broad generalizations of programs that I give out, you know, willy-nilly. Everything is customized to the person and everything is evidence-based. But... What the missing component is in a lot of these programs that you would get online or through an online coach like myself is the accountability and the behavior change support. And that's really what makes my program different. And that's how I lift women is by not just handing them a nutrition plan or handing them an exercise plan, but by giving them the tools to make behavior change that is sustainable and lifelong. So I'm really positive. I, you know, I'm, I'm someone who cannot help but be positive and my clients would probably laugh if they heard me say this, but I almost can't be negative. It's not in my spirit. So I lift women through, you know. That's the, what you need in a trainer. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think, well, you know, to be fair though, 
I, it's funny if you think about how I like to be coached, I actually like to be coached a bit harshly. And I think that's because of how I grew up as an athlete and, and what the coaching methodologies were back in the 80s and 90s. But yeah, so I coach really positively. And I think that the way that I lift women is by empowering them with multiple tools to reach their goals. And like I said, not just these cold, dead pieces of workouts and nutrition. It's more of a holistic behavioral change approach. So what are the common pregnancy and postpartum myths that you've heard about and want to debunk. So I know some of them are, well, I remember when I got pregnant with Xavier, my first child, and I was like, oh, can I still exercise? Or after you have the baby, it's like, well, after six weeks you can exercise. But for some people that was different. So yeah. There, first of all, there are a ton of, there's a lot of misinformation as well as a lot of just pure myth you know, pure myth. One of my, the worst ones that I think is the most disservice to women is that you can't do core work when you're pregnant. Yes. And I've heard that. (laughs) And heard that in this year, right? In the calendar year of 2023, that is still happening and still happening from the medical level. Right. And that that's the real danger because the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which is kind of the authoritative source for standards on fitness, they debunked that years ago, not just over a decade ago, they said, hey, whatever exercise that a fit active mother is doing in a normal pregnancy, and again, I you know, I do take obvious credence to, to high-risk pregnancies, but for a normal healthy mother that has been fit and active, she can continue the exercise she has been doing until physiological strain makes that impossible or not recommended. So for example, you can do uh, a plank Okay, as long as you haven't developmentally reached the point where you can no longer fire the transverse abdominis functionally. And that might never actually occur. So, you know, not to toot my own horn, but in a mom like myself who, you know, my training age is almost my real age, right? I've been training for 37 years, you know, as an athlete. For someone like me, that day doesn't exist, right? I can actually fire my core all the way through my pregnancy. For a mom in a different stage, you know, the ability to fire her core in a plank might stop at one month. Okay, well then how do we fire the core differently after that one month? It's never to say we don't do core exercise. And I think it's really disempowering to women to be told either not to exercise categorically or to stick to certain forms of gentle exercise simply because the practitioner doesn't have enough information about what is safe. And what about for those women that are listening that are early stages pregnancy and they're like, I kind of missed the boat on getting fit before I got pregnant. Can you start exercising when you get pregnant? Because that's another myth that I heard of, which is, oh, you can do whatever you did before you were pregnant, but once you're pregnant, don't start. And that, of course, for some women, it's quite discouraging because your body's changing so much. And it it sometimes is the motivation for you to say, oh, I want to try and get healthy before the baby comes. What can they do? And getting healthy before the baby comes is a wonderful goal to have. So if you've never been active before, I always say pregnancy is an opportunity to start a new habit that can then follow you through the postpartum period as well. My biggest piece of advice in that case for a woman who has not previously been active, two pieces of advice. One is to get walking, right? Especially in that first trimester when the nausea might be its strongest and the fatigue might be hitting the hardest. If you can start getting some steps in, that'll really improve the symptoms and also set you up for later activity. But the second piece of advice is to find a certified prenatal trainer, right? Find someone who can design a program that meets you at the exact stage that you're at and then can develop that program and progress it through your pregnancy specific to you. So I really do recommend that a woman with no previous activity experience find a certified professional. Why do you think it's important for families to adopt a healthy lifestyle? 
you know, I see so many parents come to me and say, you know, my kid is lazy. My kid doesn't do enough exercise. What can, what can they do better? And I honestly think the solution is what can we do better as parents? How can we model physical activity in a way that makes it fun and part and engaging and part of a lifestyle for the kids, right? There's nothing you can tell a child that's as powerful as what you show a child. So if you can get active together as a family, even if that's just taking a walk on Sundays or, you know, something we love to do, renting those uh, any wheel bikes in Singapore and just, oh, yes. yeah, oh, it's, we are like any wheels, number one <laughs> customer, I'm pretty sure, yeah. uh, especially now that they have the child seats on the back. Anywho, we are a fan of just using activity as a way to get from A to B, right? So if you have a favorite brunch spot that you go as a family, or if you have somewhere that you like to, a museum that you like to visit, why not walk there? Why not cycle there? Make activity a small part of the fabric of your family activities. And then that way it doesn't seem like a chore or an extra. I've had this conversation actually with a number of guests on the podcast, which is if there's something that we want our children to do, be it self-regulating on social media, be it having an understanding of consent and how to respect others or exercise, we need to be able to show them. And if, again, if I'm sitting on the couch and saying, go and do your swimming laps in the pool, the boys are going to say to me, well, mom, what are you doing? So I need to be able to be a role model for that, right? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And I think the reminder that activity is joyful mm. and movement is human nature. Yeah. Sometimes we need that and reminder as well. we don't have well. to be athletes and amazing, right? We can just go and rent the bikes at East Coast Park for an hour and slowly pedal around, which is what I do. Yeah, that's it. That's. I mean, <laughs> hey, we are slowly pedaling around when we're on those yeah. bikes as well. So full disclosure. Now, on that note, I hate to break it to you, but some of us actually don't like to exercise. So we'll do it. But the thought of doing it, the motivation is, I know I need to do it, but I don't like it. What are alternatives that families can take up in order to be physically active? Well, in this case, I think there's a few options here. So I think of the fact that most kids love being active. So it's not, it's not usually something that you have to like force a kid to do. Sometimes, sure, I mean, depending on the character of your kid, but a lot of kids can't wait to get out the door in the morning and go do something outside, right? So for the parent, for example, if you have a kid who's in sports, right? Say the kid's in soccer. What you can do is say, okay, when I drop my kid at soccer, I'm going to use that next 45 minutes to take a walk around the field. And that's your commitment to fitness that parallels theirs. It's not that you have to do it together necessarily. It's that, you know, your child is being active already. Why don't you tack on your own better habit of being physically active to that child's activity? So it's, you know, it's kind of together but separate. You know, you can do activity while the child does activity and then you both kind of feel the same way after that hour and you can go enjoy a meal together or enjoy some quiet time together. So that's one, one option. Another option to, again, make it not feel like exercise is to find a class or a sport that the whole family can do. So something I was just thinking about is my kids love, now granted my kids are very young, but my kids love watching the, the free aerobics classes that they give at the community center. So oh, Zumba. Yes, exactly. Yes. Zumba or even Tai Chi or any <laughs> of the group classes. My kids love it and it's free and it's down the street from our house. And, you know, we might feel like, oh gosh, are, you know, are we doofuses doing the, the Zumba outside in the park? But the kids love it. So something like that where there's a free activity where you can all engage together and it's just really easy in your neighborhood. That's something, another way to do it. And for those new mums who are struggling to regain their fitness and an exercise schedule, and maybe some of the mums are actually not that new. So we're talking, maybe we have toddlers running around and we just haven't been able to get back into things. What advice do you have for bringing exercise into their routine or back into their routine? 
Well, I will circle back to the advice that I gave for first trimester pregnant women, which is to get walking. The number one thing you can do to kind of re-enter the world of exercise is to get your step count up and get walking. So that's my first bit of advice. That's something you can do with kids in a stroller. That's something you can do with kids on a push bike or even toddlers on a bike that they pedal themselves. That's something that you can do at any time in any neighborhood in almost any weather. It's been so rainy here in Singapore. But that's one, one tip. The second tip is to find workouts that you can do at home, fully at home. I think you know, one of the powerful things about my online program is that I have entire programs written that require no equipment that are done in the, in the privacy of your own home. And I think that you know when we think about exercise, we think about going to a gym, registering for a class, we think of big time investment, big financial investment, and location investment, right? Leaving the house. And I think that if you can visualize the activity as something that can happen at any point in your house and it doesn't have to last for an hour, that is powerful. So, you you know, using the idea of incremental change rather than everything all at once. And being kind to yourself as well about it, right? Like you just start with some walking and it doesn't have to be seven days a week. Sure and doesn't. Boot camps and no, all the... No, gosh. And I, in fact, you know, that, that, that whole boot camp HIIT trend is something that I would like to see kind of start to decline a bit in my personal opinion. But yeah, walking is the most powerful thing that moms can do to get started. Sleep is always tricky for babies, toddlers, for the parents. How can we tell and encourage children to get more rest? And at what point do we tell adults to get more rest too? Oh, this is, so you should know, full disclosure, that the Lim household is a sleep training household. So we started sleep training our kids and this is, you know, people are aghast when I say this at two weeks. Yeah. Um, So we really start from the, you know, the bitterest beginning with our kids. And that's because I know that sleep underlies all the other foundational wellness practices that we value in our household. So for example, if you're getting poor sleep, it's very difficult to hold on to lean muscle. It's very difficult to motivate to get to the gym or to do exercise. Uh, The hunger, you know, the hunger cues are stronger when you're underslept, all these things. So for us, sleep is a non-negotiable. What we can learn or what we can do better in terms of sleep is learn from our kids' bedtime routines, right? All of us who have had toddlers, even if, you know, even if they aren't great sleepers, at least we try with a routine, right? We have a bedtime, we have maybe a story, a song, a bath, etc. Why don't we do that for ourselves as adults? Why don't we have a designated wind down period as adults that puts us in that same mindset? The reason that that works and the reason all the parenting books and sleep training books tell you to do that is because it works. Something that's consistent, ritualistic, and again, encourages sleep. So you don't see our, you know, you don't see us putting screens in front of our kids at 8 p.m., right? Absolutely not. You know, we draw the shades, we read a quiet story, like I said, maybe sing a song and lights out. That's something we can absolutely apply as adults. Yeah, I'm so bad for having the screen before bed. Yeah, m- most are. And, and again, sometimes us included, we try. Yeah, I try reading, but then some nights it's just like, oh, I could just look at this one thing. And then next thing you know, it's way past my bed. I go to bed very early. It's way past my bedtime. It's like 11 o'clock or something. Well, isn't it funny though that, you know, reading actually does tend to induce sleep for most folks simply because it is way less stimulating than looking at a screen. So yeah, it's a great swap. I'll I'll work on that one a bit. (laughs) So let's move on to one of Singapore's favorite pastimes, which of course is eating. There are plenty of fad diets out there. So there's keto, there's paleo, there's intermediate intermittent fasting, very difficult to say. And then there's also five and two, all these different kind of diets. Which are the ones that people should follow and which are the ones they should steer away from? Well, here's what I'll say about any diet. 
any diet that you're trying to get on, particularly if weight loss is the goal. If weight loss is the goal, then calorie deficit is the goal. So whatever diet is going to help you achieve calorie deficit, that is probably going to be the best one for you. Now, the three most common ways to achieve calorie deficit, either you restrict overall calories. So you take whatever food that you're currently eating and take the calories down so that it becomes less than the calories that you're burning. The second way is to eliminate a macronutrient group. So that's like what a keto diet is. It says we're going to take out carbohydrates and in doing so, naturally, most folks will bring their caloric load down. And then the third is to restrict the time with which you have to eat. So that's what intermittent fasting is, right? You only have eight hours to eat or even fewer hours to eat. So within those hours, it's harder to get into a caloric surplus, right? Easier to maintain a deficit. So you can either play with time, type, or again, overall calories just going down. And any of those will yield weight loss results. Should families consider switching their current diet to a plant-based diet? Why or why not? Um, I would not recommend plant-based diets as a general rule, especially for families with children. Children need protein developmentally, and protein from animals is the easiest and most complete source of protein. So in our ho- in our household, we are plant-forward, but not plant-based. We try to have plants at every meal, but we also have um, majority animal proteins at every meal as well. Amanda's husband, Dr. Tyler, also chimes in on kids' diets with some expert advice. How about with vitamins and supplements? Because they're everywhere and a lot of children are very fussy and there's a lot of anxiety when your child won't, for instance, eat enough dairy or consume enough dairy to what is recommended. And that's when a lot of parents lean on vitamins and supplements because they think, well, this is a way to supplement the deficiencies that they have in their diet. Do you believe that that's something that parents should be doing for their children? Is it something that is actually helpful? Or there's all this talk out there that it's kind of a placebo, right? There's not really much that vitamins do. Yeah. So I guess I should start that as a parent myself, I do not supplement my kids with anything. Mm. I do believe that a healthy children, a healthy child for that matter, should not have to be supplemented with any forms of vitamins really. And if you are able to just give them a varied diet, those vitamins would come from natural food sources. Mm. So unless your child has specific medical issues that are brought up by your doctor that may require supplementation, I think those are are very uncommon. Then you should consider vitamin supplementation. But with regards to, to parents worrying about their child being a fussy eater and that's why, you know, certain vitamins are not there. They don't eat any vegetables, Tyler. What are we doing? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, the vitamins you get from vegetables may come from fruits too. So so if your kids are eating fruits, then then I think it's fine. But I think parents then tend to to worry when their kids are, are fussy or picky and then tend to resort to vitamin supplementation as a form of way to relieve really their own anxiety rather than, you know, what the children need. And and in my experience as a practicing physician, I feel that most of the time it is some form of parental anxiety. And if the kids are growing well and you're seeing that, you know, their, their height is growing, their, their weight is gaining, uh, there's really no need for, for supplementation because you are doing things right. Maybe in just ways you don't even know, like, you know, in terms of them not eating vegetables, but eating fruits and they're getting, you know, the type of vitamins they, they would need. And then how about, so Kourtney Kardashian apparently cuts out gluten, dairy and sugar from a kid's consumption. And look, I know that when I had my first child, I was a lot 
stricter in terms of sugar and treats than I was when Marcel was kind of one on two and he had a lot more treats than Xavier did. But, you know, on a scale of that's totally normal to cut out all those things to it's very extreme and we shouldn't be doing that. Where where do we sit? Where do you sit? I'm pretty close to the, that is so extreme that almost no one should be doing that. <laughs> now, of course, if you have children with food intolerances or very, you know, diagnosed food allergies, of course, you'll need to be more careful about their consumption. And overconsumption of sugar is not great at any age, right? No. So, but that being said, kids need a ton of carbohydrates. Their carbohydrate demands, their energy demands are very high. So, to eliminate something like gluten, which is a component in a lot of carbohydrate foods, not necessarily sugary foods, it would be difficult to navigate that for a child just willy-nilly if they didn't have have a reason. Exactly. And again, dairy, that's almost shocking to me because children need calcium at this crucial development stage for their bone health. So for me, that would be, like I said, almost extreme to the point of contraindicated. I think that that's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So food is a very controversial topic that's, you know, close to home for, for, for almost everybody. And, and, you know, everyone has their preference on how to, how to feed their kids. It's a really personal issue. It's very hard to, to then, as controversial as the science gets, you know, that there's a whole literature or body that may even support whatever Khloe Kardashian is doing, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not going to get into that. But like I said, uh, as a parent, um, I probably would not food restrict in terms of certain categories of food just to alleviate my own, you know, expectations of how food should be. Because I I do recognize that growing kids needs exposure. And if I can just put up, let's say, allergies as an example, um, the more you don't expose your children to, to allergens in general, the more likely they are that they will develop certain form of allergies because they are never exposed to those things before. So, and, and even for infections, uh, if your kid grew up in a completely septic environment where there are no germs, likely hood that they come out as a healthy adult is, is very low because they are not exposed to all these antigens. The immune system doesn't know what they're doing. So to me, uh, I, I take the same approach when it comes to food. And I do feel that kids should be exposed to, to all sorts of food, really, uh, regardless of whether you, you, you think it's good, it's bad. Um, even if it's bad, uh, and you do find that your kids only want to eat that, and that, that's when you as a parent then can step in and see how you could develop coping strategies for them. And I'd rather them eat bad food under my watch than, you know, when they're 15 or 16 and eating all this bad food out there. And I can no longer talk sense or, you know, teach them any form of coping strategies to deal with it. So I am more flexible in terms of that. And I, although I do agree from the literature of body that, you know, probably too much added sugar is bad. Yeah, so so I would still introduce sugar, you know, in their diet only because I think it's a healthy exposure. Mm. And I do recognize that if they become overly indulgent, and that's where I should step in and stop it. But to eliminate added sugar entirely and expect them to go through their whole lives without added sugar is, is you know, improbable. Mm. And, and probably you're devoiding them of coping strategies in the future. It's just good to just expose them to anything and see how they respond. And as a parent and when they're very young, that's when you can really help them. And 
how about, I do this quite a lot. I'll look at a, a cereal or something for myself and I'll look at the nutritional values. And usually I look at the sugars because we all know that cereals can have these crazy high number of sugars, even though it says it's healthy on the front. Is that something that people should be doing and looking at and instilling in their kind of food choices when they are at the supermarket? Absolutely. Knowledge is power, just like in any other context where you're trying to have a positive outcome. So for example, a budget, right? If you're trying to stick to a budget, if you don't look at the transaction record in your bank account, how will you ever be able to stick to it? You won't. And then how will you ever have the outcome of a you know balanced financial life? You won't. So how would you not know anything about calories, macronutrients, nutrition facts, fiber, and sugar, and yet expect to have a healthy outcome or expect to have a balanced diet? It's nearly impossible. So yeah, I definitely recommend empowering yourself with knowledge around food and examining food labels for what they are. If there's one thing that you look at a food label and take away from it, it should be the serving size. Right. I think the most, the, the thing that most people are shocked by is when they, you know, have a bag of chips, for example, that looks small, they eat the whole thing and they say, it's only 150 calories. And I say, uh-uh, that's one serving. There's three in the bag. My favorite chocolate always says six servings. And I'm telling you now it isn't six servings It doesn't servings last six me. times for you. That's, hey, that's completely normal. So then what are the things we should be looking for when we do look at that nutritional value apart from the serving yeah, size? Yeah, serving size, like I said, first and foremost, make sure that what you're looking at is one serving, or if it isn't one serving, know how many servings are in the package. Right. That's number one. Number two is the sugar. If there's yeah. added sugar, so when you look at the nutrition label, there's carbohydrates, sugars, added sugars, Okay added sugars is the real danger zone, right? Because sugars could include fruit-based sugars, which, you know, are another issue entirely, but let's just put it, let's, for the sake of ease, say that added sugars are the ones you want to keep as close to zero as possible. So if you look at a food, especially if it's a food for your children and the added sugars are five grams or above per serving, I personally would rethink whether that's the best food choice. You and your husband work out together every day. That's inspirational. <laughs> is this your version of couple time? Is it part of your job? Is it something that you enjoy doing? I assume you. Can you I say it's all it. three? Can I say, <laughs> is there an all of the above option, teacher? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's all yeah. three for us. It's absolutely couple time because, especially because, so the way that our studio is situated is that we have the gym in our studio. So we work in the place where our gym is, right? And so when we, yeah, so when we're working out, it's combination work time, combination conversation time. We listen to podcasts during that time. You know, we hash out some things that we need to do for work. And we also just have personal conversations, you know, about the kids or about, you know, our daughter's upcoming enrollment in school. We have chats during those times. So I would say it absolutely is couples time. It is also in a way, work time. You know, for me as a coach, I do a lot of what I do also is produce content. So, you know, we do a lot of content production during that time. You know, we'll do an, a set of weights and then we'll film a set of weights, right? So it's, you know, it's definitely work time for me as well. And then it's also something we enjoy. We, we I don't think we would choose to do all of our workouts together if it was truly a drudgery or if, if it was, you know, stressful for us to be together during that time. It's It's really not. Did a lot change for you when you had your children in terms of your approach to fitness? Or was it kind of like, I'm pregnant and it was quite seamless because you've always been so fit and into so much of this lifestyle in terms of working out and being healthy? I will say that it was interesting because I got certified as a pre and postpartum fitness trainer in 2009. And then oh, I didn't so have my kids. Yeah, yeah, so I didn't have my kids until 2020. So there was a big, t a large 
bit of time where I was practicing where I had not yet had the experience of pregnancy. So I will say the way that I have practiced pre and postpartum fitness has changed since having my kids, particularly because I've gone through a C-section recovery and a VBAC recovery. So I've had both types of births. That has informed the way that I particularly practice with my postpartum women very, very much because now I truly understand what it feels like to heal a scar or truly understand what it feels like to have gone through the physical labor of a vaginal birth. And that has completely changed the way that I practice in that it's made me more sensitive to the intricacies of those issues. I think previously I knew categorically what to do, right? You should get scar massage if you've had a C-section, but having gone through it, I know what that tenderness feels like. And I know that even the the feeling of putting your gym clothes on after having a C-section could be a deterrent from exercise. So it has made me more sensitive to this kind of nuances of postpartum fitness. But in terms of what I did for my own training before and after, I would say after I have been so much more focused on rebuilding. So functionality, range of motion, flexibility, these are priorities that I have at the forefront now that previously was just strength, speed, power. And now I've kind of brought in these other elements to my program. I In this, this year, calendar year, I've started doing calisthenics as a way to kind of further refine my body's functionality without just adding more load. You know, as I do approach 40, I've found that while loading is still fun and I still love my strength training, I, my body is telling me to seek a different path. What's the one thing in Singapore that you can't resist? And I'm assuming it's going to be something to do with food, but... Oh, it absolutely is something to do with food in that it is two words, roti, rata. Oh it my is gosh. my favorite. Yes. We have it every Sunday. That is an, an, an indulgence that I work into my week. And then any last advice or thoughts for our new moms or parents that are hoping to kickstart a more healthy lifestyle? I think the biggest piece of advice I can give to busy parents or new parents who are feeling the stress of that parenting transition is something is better than nothing. Any bit you can do, if you can do a five-minute stretch while your baby is sleeping, if you can commit to doing 10 minutes of walking out in the sunshine with your newborn, anything is better than nothing. So start small and get that momentum to build. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much, Amanda, for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Amanda, for our chat today. I am now joined by our podcast producer, Suv, to chat a little about today's episode. Hi, Suv. Hi, hi. So what have you learned from today's episode? Are you inspired to become more active? Fit? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so as you know, I come up with all the questions and I snuck in that question about hating exercise because I'm one of those people who don't like to exercise. And the last time I went exercising was before COVID. So that's around 2019. And then COVID was just a good but very long excuse to not exercise. So it's been a while. One of my goals this year is to go back to the gym again. So getting the tips from Amanda and listening to her speak, I'm just inspired. And they've all been very valuable tips and advice. The other one that I thought was really something that I needed to hear was about sleep. Yeah. Because as adults, right, we either get or think we get enough sleep or we purposefully don't get enough sleep because we're staying up because of our phones or we're on Netflix. So hearing that and establishing a good sleep routine is something that I needed to hear for myself. 
I'm always sometimes teased in the office because I go to bed so early. <laughs> yes. And everyone finds it quite shocking because I'm like 10 o'clock and I am, I'm usually in bed between 9.30 and 10, but it's because I actually need sleep. If I don't have sleep, I'm just not as good a parent. I'm not as good a partner and I'm definitely not as good a work colleague. Sof. So when I sleep, I'm definitely just operating at a better level. I think that's a good habit also to you know get enough sleep because then you can function better like what you said and you know you are just a an all around a nicer person as opposed to like when you have enough, not enough sleep and you're cranky and then everyone else gets affected by your crankiness exactly besides sleep I know that you're also very active and you've team sport you mentioned <laughs> and uh, you do a lot of tennis weekly but that's on your own and with your friends but what about as a family with you and the boys and Mark what do you do to keep active so we actually all play tennis and the reason I got inspired to play tennis was because all of them, the boys and Mark, they're all really good at tennis and I couldn't play. So that was my little motivation to learn. So we actually go and play tennis together once every week, every two weeks as a family. We love walking together and we invariably would go to East Coast Park and the boys have bikes, um, but Mark and I don't. So we would rent bikes there and do bike rides as a family. We love going to the beach and beach holidays and swimming together. So we are quite active. I think also because with kids, if you're not active with them, and in Singapore, we don't have big backyards or things like that. So if you don't go out with them, they don't exercise as much and they don't get as much outside time and they end up on screens and things which we're trying obviously to stay away from but also when you're outside with them like if we go to the local park to kick the soccer ball around if I'm just sitting and watching it's pretty boring for me it's so much more fun if I'm involved as well so I try to be yeah Okay, I'm inspired now. I'm going to the gym after this. Amazing. Good job, (laughs) Sue. Well, that's it for this episode of Growing Pains. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Amanda for inspiring Sue and I. Yes. And we will see you next time.